Again, welcome to Christian Covenant Fellowship. It is a great joy um, to serve as y'all's pastor, and I appreciate so many of you being here on Sundays. As you've noticed from the beautiful sermon graphic on the screen behind us, we are taking a break from our our series through the book of Ephesians in order to have a little five-week mini-series in the Gospel of Mark. And here's why. We are nearing, as you likely know, the season of Easter, where we are going to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ and then consider what does it mean to live in light of his resurrection. And so I thought there would be no better way for us to prepare for that, ready our hearts, so to say, than to take a look at Mark's gospel, which gives us such a clear and succinct summary, highlights of Jesus' activity and identity. And so this morning, we begin by turning to the Word of God in Mark chapter 4, verse 35 to 41. This morning, aptly, we're going to look at the king who calms the seas and calms the storms of our life. If you have your Bibles, I hope you do, please open up to Mark chapter 4, verse 35 to 41. We're going to be opening the word of God, and I'm going to ask the God of the word to now speak to us in this time. So let me pray for us. Father, we bring so much into this room. Lord, we bring moments, hours, lifetimes of memories, of joys, of sorrows, um, expectations. We bring it all here. We know that this is your place. You speak to us in your word, and you long for us to speak with you in prayer and to worship you and adore you, and so we've come to do that today. And yet, Lord, we stand needy, dependent, looking for hope in the God who is up from the grave. And so, Lord, we ask that now as the word of God is open and expounded, that you would guard my heart and my mouth, that I would only say what makes most of and points to our King, this risen Lord Jesus. Lord, I pray that these words would be edifying to each and every one of us, and the words would be glorifying to you. I pray that our hearts would be stirred in confident adoration in who you are and what you have done, and that we'd be brought to our knees in reverential awe and and just wonder at who you are, the God who calms the seas, the God who calms the storms of our lives. So speak to us, Lord. As your word is open, we know it's living and active. You are living and active. We ask that you would speak and reign in this place. And we ask all these things in your son's powerful name. Amen. What is on your heart right now? What is on your heart this morning when you walked into this church? For some of us, we have carried in deep devastation, deep joy, or deep pain. Some of us have great joys over the last week, over the last month since we've gotten together. And for all of us, we have something in between, a little mix of both. And the good news for the Gospel of Mark that we're going to unpack in five quick weeks over the next, uh, between now and the end of April, is that the Gospel of Mark has something to say to everyone. <laughs> The the gospel of Mark has something to say to our joys, to our sorrows, to our sins, to our struggles, to everything for everyone, and here's why. Because at the center of the gospel of Mark is the King Jesus. And the King has something to say, not just good news, but an invitation to respond. And so this, this month, we look at the gospel of Mark longing to hear from, longing to see, to savor, and then to respond to the King who is speaking. The king who gets in the boat with us today and on Easter morning gets up from the grave. 
That is the king we have come to see. And so this morning, we begin our first of five weeks through this gospel by looking at Mark chapter 4, verse 35 to 41, a familiar anecdote for many of us, pointing to Jesus' identity and activity, but a fresh reminder, as God's word always is, isn't it? A fresh reminder, invitation to find joy in the God who calms the seas of difficulty and then incites a fear, a reverential storm of fear in our hearts. See, the big idea in this short six-verse passage for you and I is this. The king is in the boat. The king is in the boat. And the king in the boat is doing two things. First, he's bringing a peace to the storms, and then he's causing a storm amidst our peace. You know, see what I mean? The king is in the boat. He's doing two things. He's bringing peace to the storms, and then he's bringing a storm to our peace. Follow along with me, beginning in verse 35 to 38. I invite you to keep your Bibles open, because I want you to see that these are God's words, not merely my ideas or my thoughts. But first, the king is bringing peace amidst the storms. Verse 35 to 38. On that day, when evening had come, he, Jesus, said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Jesus is tired. Life is tiring, isn't it? So often you and I feel very tired. We have vocational demands at work, difficulties in the family. Some of us are in retirement in our 70s and realize it's harder than work in our 50s. For many of us, we walk into this room weary, tired, fatigued. And we're longing for that head-hit-the-cushion kind of pass-out sort of sleep that Jesus is envisioning here. I have a six-month-old son. He sleeps when he shouldn't, and doesn't sleep when he should. I don't know what Graco did with his car seat. But the moment I get him out of his crib and into that car seat, and we pull out of the driveway and hit the stop sign, I look in the rearview mirror, and it's like, Ezra, my little man. I'm going to ask him when he gets older, what's so hard about being six months old that you had to sleep all the time? You and I, we know the fatigue of life in this world. Sometimes a, a strength-sapping fatigue, long, making us long for like a comatose sleep. We remember in this passage that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. He's going to show us content sleep, even amidst a great storm. But it comes after a very tiring and long day. Remember what verse 35 said. On that day, so he's tying into what happened in verse 1 to 34. When evening had come that day, he said to them, Let's go to the other side, other side of the Sea of Galilee. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was, and other boats were with him. Here's why Jesus is tired. In verse 1 to 34 of chapter 4, he has been preaching all day long. And he hasn't had amplified sound. He's been standing in a boat facing the northwestern shores of the Sea of Galilee, preaching to the masses, kind of like a stadium audience, and it's essentially an amphitheater 
where the disciples are trying their best to facilitate this, but nonetheless, he's been projecting his voice all day. He must have been wiped, exhausted. And so he gets in the boat with his disciples when evening came, it says, at the end of this long day, and they go to the other side. The western side of the Sea of Galilee was the hustle, the bustle, the crowds. The eastern side, the nice, calm, serene waters, the less inhabited place. No wonder, he says, let's go to the other side. A perfect place for a sunset cruise. A little nap on the Sea of Galilee. And they went just as he was. They didn't stop to change clothes. They didn't pull through the drive through at McDonald's. They were so tired, they were ready to fall asleep like Ezra in a car seat before he hits that stop sign. They were tired. But despite looking for serene sleep, they're met with a storm of insecurity. You ever feel like that happens? You're so tired, and here comes the storm. Verse 37. And a great windstorm arose. Just what you're looking for when you're tired at the end of a long day. A great windstorm arose. And the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling, seemingly out of nowhere. These guys want a nap. They're hit with a hurricane. So, too, the same for us. We walk through that season of difficulty at work. We get through that financial struggle. We hear the difficulties in our family where our kids just seem to rebel and want nothing to do with us. We get unexpected news that we weren't longing for, and we just want to take a nap, but we're met with a storm. Something greater happens. And, and it, here it's called a great windstorm. A great windstorm arose. Waves were breaking in. The boat was filling up. Mark is concise but clear in his wording. He has the shortest of all Gospels, and yet he, every word has a meaning. For a professional fisherman, remember, these guys were professional fishermen, to say that this was a, a great windstorm, it clues us in. This was not like a little rainy afternoon on Crab Orchard. This was like deadliest catch, Middle East episode. These dudes were scared, and rightfully so. The waves were breaking in. The boat was filling up. See, the Sea of Galilee was prone not to just rainstorms, but to hurricane-like cauldrons of uncertainty. And here's why. It's the largest freshwater lake in the world, 13 by 8 miles. It's not really a lake. It's a small ocean. And it sits 682 feet below sea level. Below sea level. It's surrounded by mountains up to 3,000 feet tall, right around it. It's essentially a little bowl beneath a table with mountains around it. You can imagine the winds just coming over the top, sprinting down the hills, hitting that water, and at the drop of a dime, you have a great windstorm. Waves going back and forth, lapping across the shores and into this boat. No wonder these guys, professional fishermen, who are not sitting in the Titanic, they are sitting in a 15-foot wooden canoe amidst a hurricane. No wonder they're scared. So true for us. We often feel like we're in 15-foot canoes amidst hurricanes. See, the Sea of Galilee was prone to storms because of its topography and geography, what I just described. We are prone to suffer amidst, to be kind of cast out to sea amidst the difficulties of this life because of history. Ever since the fall, Things haven't been the way that they should have been. 
Ever since the fall, you and I have struggled with temptation to sin, living under the hardships of the curse. See, for these guys in Mark 4, it was the waves of a terrible, terrifying sea that were filling up their boat. For us, it is the unexpected hurricanes of death, of divorce, diseases, layoffs at work, discord in our families, unexpected hurricanes filling up, threatening to sink our hearts. It feels as though we are aghast in a sea where the ocean of tears, the ocean of tears, would overflow into the, into the boat that we sit in. I don't know if you've ever been there. These guys were afraid. Many times in our, in our suffering in this world, it's just the ocean of tears is all we can see around us to our left and to our right. In this moment, not just for us, but for these guys, in this moment, what do we need? We need to see the king. And we need to see that he's in the boat. Verse 38. Good news and surprising news. He was in the stern. Good news. Surprising news. Asleep on the cushion. He was in the stern. Jesus was in the stern in the boat. But he was asleep on the cushion. There he is. Is this what you thought Jesus would be doing at this moment? In a hurricane? Professional fishermen screaming and crying? But there he is. Asleep. Passed out. Probably sleeping harder than Ezra at the stop sign. And you know why. Here's why. He's the one who made the waves. He's the one who is so content because he's so in control. He's the one who's in control of the boat, the waves, the Sea of Galilee, everything before to come and now until eternity. Jesus is asleep on the cushion in the stern and he's content, but the disciples are distressed. And here's what they did. They woke him up. They awoke him. And said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? You know, the tone of their voice is not recorded in Scripture, but it's hard for me to imagine a different tone. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? A difficult situation prompting an indicting accusation. See, they start off pretty good, don't they? Teacher. A title of reverence. Yes, Jesus is the best, the capital T teacher. That's a good place to start. But then the good start takes a downhill turn when they ask the doubt-laced question. Do you not care? Do you not love us? Do you not see? Are you not aware of our fears? Do you not care that we are perishing? Jesus, we are about to be destroyed. Death is imminent. Why are you absent? That's probably everything. And then, then some... That was going through their minds at this moment. See, this temptation towards accusation is a struggle for you and I in the midst of our struggles. I shouldn't say struggle twice. <laughs> it's a struggle for us as well. See, the difficulties of this life can prompt doubt. It can pr- prompt us to doubt God's goodness and his power. We forget that he's in the boat and we forget he's the one who made the boat and the waves. What, what struggle are you going through right now? What sort of suffering, what sort of hardship are you walking amidst? And what does that struggle make you think towards God and others? See, for the fishermen, the waves didn't cause the fear or the doubt as much as it revealed it. The same for us. The waves didn't cause the fear as much as they reveal it. And here's what I mean. At the moment that their life was threatened, 
they had to come face to face with, how much do I trust this king in the boat? How much do I trust this guy who I left everything to follow a couple chapters ago? Is he really the one that I can trust? And when we come push to shove face to face with the greatest of all fears, death itself, that's when we find out what the answer to that question is. Who is this king in the boat? And is he worthy of our trust? And see, when we realize and we remember who the king in the boat is, our accusations just turn to opportunity to trust and enjoy him. We must remember that the king's not just in the boat, but the king is the one who made the boat. The king is the one who made the waters. See, this king in the boat is the Jesus who, according to Hebrews 1, upholds the universe by the word of his power upholds the universe by the word of his power. The king in the boat is the Jesus who spoke all of creation into existence with the Father and the Holy Spirit. The king in the boat is the God who came in humility 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem and promises to come in glorious victory when the new heavens and new earth return. He's returning. This is the king in glory. He is the one who is powerful beyond all measure and yet cares beyond comprehension. The king is in the boat and the king is powerful beyond measure and he cares beyond comprehension. Here's what I mean. Not only is he powerful... He made the oceans and the waves. He cares. Psalm 34, verse 18. He is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves the crushed in spirit. He is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves the crushed in spirit. If you are in Christ Jesus, if you have trusted in him for for his life, death, and resurrection, for your salvation, he is near to you in the midst of every suffering. Psalm 46, verse 1. He is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. You know how near he was to the disciples? Near enough that they could touch him, yell out to him, scream, and get his attention. You know how near he is to you if you are in Christ Jesus? A very present help in trouble, a refuge and strength. It's no wonder that the Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, that he is the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. What does he do? He comforts us in every affliction. Do you have any affliction today? Well, guess what? If you're in Christ, he comforts you in every single one. Every single affliction. Not just the comfort of one another, which we need, but God himself comforting you with his words of promise, his reminders, pointing us back to see the king who's in control, the king who's in the boat. Guys, this makes a difference in our suffering, doesn't it? This makes a huge difference. Not only the fact that the king's in the boat, but that the king has made the boat and controls the seas. That means if you are in Christ Jesus, there is no diagnosis There's no difficulty at home or or in the office. There's no financial downfall or ruin that can ever separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing in all of creation can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus if you are in him. If you have given him your sin, received his forgiveness, he is your father. The father of mercies and God of all comfort is your father. He is the God of your afflictions. And he comforts you in every single one of those. He has the ability to bring peace to the storms of our lives. Praise God. Praise God. We're only four verses in. We better get moving. The king is in the boat. 
He brings peace to the storms. What does he do next? He brings a storm amidst our peace. He brings a storm amidst our peace. We'll find out what this means. Turn with me to verse 39 to 41. The seas are calm, but the hearts will be, become revering. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased. And there was a great calm. And then he said to them, the disciples, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Interesting, all that's needed at this point are questions between each other, and we know exactly what their hearts are and his heart is. Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear. And they said to one another, Who then is this? Who then is this? That even the wind and the sea obey him. Awe is a powerful thing. A-W-E. A-W-E. Awe is a very powerful thing, isn't it? Any of us who have, have been awestruck or stood in the presence of greatness, we know what the difference is between knowing something and experiencing it. And this often happens when we go and see beautiful places. Been to the Grand Canyon. Totally different than Google imaging that. And then standing on the side of it and saying, oh my gosh. You've been to a tropical island. The travel agent definitely sold it short. Once you land and see how beautiful it is. Or maybe Bald Knob Cross. Have you ever seen it as the sun was coming up? A breathtaking, awe-inspiring sight. Something that you can't even describe in words. But once you see up close and personal, it changes your heart. It grips you. It invokes a position and posture of reverential fear. Greater than any scenery on the face of this earth is seeing the face of the King Jesus. Greater than the scenery that we could find anywhere on the face of this earth is seeing the face of Jesus and his holiness for who he is. And in this story, we get a mere glimpse, and yet it invokes a storm of reverential fear. A peaceful heart, peaceful no more, but peaceful in the right way, or uneased in the right way. A posture of reverential fear. Verse 39. Jesus responds to their pleas for help. He awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. Talk about waking up well. (laughs) He wanted a nap after a long day and his disciples didn't let him sleep. They woke him up amidst a hurricane. I don't know how you wake up, but this is not how I wake up. Usually, at oh dark 30 in the morning... When I am awoken, I don't ever get up by my own choice anymore. I have two young children. When I am awoken at oh dark 30, the first word out of my mouth, know what it is? Why? (laughs) Why the crying? Why the doubt? Why are you so afraid? You have little faith. You were fed yesterday. You're going to be fed today. Why? You and I, we need like a shower, a cup of coffee before anything good comes out of our mouths. Not Jesus. Not Jesus. He's awakened after a long day. The first word out of his mouth, peace. Be still. The first word out of his mouth calms a hurricane. Good thing he's in the boat. And good thing he's so patient and powerful. See, he awoke and rebuked the wind. And the mention of this 
that he rebuked the wind before he rebuked the disciples, it says something about Jesus, doesn't it? He rebuked the wind before he rebukes the disciples. He says that his, their fears matter to him. He's willing to powerfully speak directly to their fears. He is a tender shepherd, not just a powerful king. He's both. He's the, he's the shepherd who, when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, what does he do? He leads us beside still waters. Still waters. When the cares of our heart are many, according to Psalm 94, 19, his consolations cheer our soul. His words of promise correcting our struggles, but also speaking peace to us. See, he's the one who cares compassionately, but then he speaks powerfully. He cares compassionately, then he speaks powerfully. Here's what happens next. He said to the sea, there's exclamation points in here, you notice that? For a reason. Peace. Be still. It's a command. Peace. Be still. And the wind ceased. And there was a great calm. He speaks to the elements of creation like a master speaking to his servants. They respond immediately as if they have another option. He's the one who made them. Imagine the scene. Millions of horsepower-fueled winds immediately silent. Millions of gallons of raging ocean waters immediately calm, like crab orchard on the most calm morning you can imagine. A hurricane to that at the voice of three words. Peace, be still. The king in the boat is the God who speaks peace into existence, just like he always has. Genesis 1, God said, and peaceful creation was brought forth. Exodus 3, he seized the bondage of his people in Egypt, and God said, I've seen their bondage and their, and their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them. And then he does. He comes down to offer us the Prince of Peace, because the worst storm, the worst storm that you and I will face is not the one in Galilee. The worst storm that you and I will ever face is the storm of God's wrath that we deserve in our sin. See, God had to send the Prince of Peace because we were needing peace. You and I, we have these natures, these dispositions in us that are bent away from loving God as we were made to. We're better at loving ourselves, desiring our glory than His. We deserve separation because we're unholy. And yet the Holy God offers us reconciliation. We deserve separation. He offers reconciliation by sending the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. He comes to get into our boats. He gets into the boat of our sin to bear it on himself, to forgive us, to die the death that we deserve. And then he gets into the boat of our suffering to say, not only am I going to forgive you of your sin, but I'm going to be near you and with you in your suffering. He broke into this world. God came to us, transcendent, became imminent, high and holy, near to us, lowly and unholy. He came to save, to seek and save us. This storm wasn't an accident. It helps us see our need for the holy God. See, this this story of Jesus, the Prince of Peace coming to save us, is what the entire Old Testament has been pointing toward. The sea in Mark chapter 4 is a representation. Just like in all of Scripture, the sea is a picture of chaos. If ever anyone were to know chaos, it's fishermen in the first century. And they would have appreciated this in the Old Testament. Remember early on in Genesis, 
Noah in the ark. Noah in the ark. A sea threatening to wipe out the entire earth. What does God do? He offers salvation from judgment via his provision in the ark. A strong refuge to run to, to hide in. Remember the Red Sea in Exodus chapter 14? There the Israelites are, fleeing from their enemy, the Egyptians. They're confronted with another massive sea. How will we cross this body of water and find safety? Moses raises his hands. The seas part, they walk across on dry ground. The seas parted, and they find salvation from judgment. Jesus is the greater ark. When the seas, the floodwaters of God's wrath would threaten to inundate us, and they should, Jesus offers a refuge, a safe place. We run to him, trust in his work, and we find the refuge that we need amidst the otherwise drowning waters. Remember what Jesus did on Calvary? He parted his hands. He parts his hands on Calvary. Moses parted his hands in the Red Seas, went side to side, and they walked across on dry ground. When Jesus goes to Calvary and parts his hands, his nail-pierced hands on that cross for you and I, the sin and the death that we deserve, he's parting the seas of God's wrath so that through faith in his work, we can walk across on the dry, the forgiven ground. Reconciliation accomplished by propitiation. He sheds his blood so we can be united. He suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. The greater ark, the greater Moses, his hands raised us freed of the penalty that we deserve. See, guys, Jesus isn't just in the boat. He is the boat. Jesus isn't just in the boat. He is the boat. We have no hope in sin and sorrow and suffering apart from him. When we are confronted with deadly hurricanes fearful storms with diseases, with divorces, with unplanned, unexpected death, we don't have a hope apart from him, but in him we have the greatest hope. Because the Jesus that got in the boat is the Jesus that got up from the grave. See, the Prince of Peace came to live the life that we failed to, satisfying God's law. The Prince of Peace came to die the death that you and I deserve, to die, but we never could offer a holy, wrath-satisfying, sin-atoning death. And then the Prince of Peace came to conquer our greatest enemy, death itself. When he got up from that tomb, he announced the victory that you and I long to hear. Death is swallowed up in victory. Death is swallowed up in victory. Guys, when Jesus got into the boat... It was a preview of him getting up from the grave. He is near to us in our sin, able to forgive our sin, be near to us in our suffering, and then he conquers sin, Satan, and death so that all who believe in him, all who confess with their mouth and believe in their heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, not only only know he's in the boat, but they run to him as the boat. Have you run to him? Have you run to him? See, It's one thing to know about this Jesus, but it's another thing to sink your hopes into him. It's one thing to be familiar with the Jesus who is called teacher, but it's another thing to be dependent upon the Jesus who is Lord. I I can't let you leave this morning lacking in any hope apart from Jesus. 
If you have any doubts, any sufferings, any sorrows, I offer Jesus and Jesus alone as the means for forgiveness of your sin, your right relationship with God, and your comfort amidst suffering. Remember what Jesus said when he got up from the grave. In John chapter 20, he spoke to the disciples, some of the same men who are in this boat, and he said, peace be with you. Peace be with you. And amidst their fears in Mark 4, he says, peace be still, calms the seas. In John 20, he says, peace be with you. He calms the fear of their hearts again. When Jesus gets up from the grave and issues the command, do not be afraid, we have reason not to fear because he says, peace be with you. Death is defeated, guys. Death is defeated. It has been done with. Satan is slain. Sin is vanquished. Death is defeated. Peace be with you is the same sort of command that peace be still is to the waters. Peace be with you. See, when you fear the Lord Jesus, there's nothing left to fear. When you have a reverential awe of Jesus, there is nothing left to fear, not even death itself. And that's exactly what happened in these men's hearts. See, the the storm was calmed, but then the storm was incited. Verse 40 and 41. He said to them, the disciples, Why are you so afraid? The The waters are as calm as they could be, but they're afraid. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this? Who is this? That even the winds and the seas obey him. They're afraid after the storm is silenced. A mere two verses later, these guys have forgotten about Galilee. They're thinking about eternity. (laughs) Peace has been brought to the storm of the ocean, but a storm has been brought to their hearts. They're forgetting about Galilee. They're thinking about eternity because they are in the presence of divinity. They are awestruck. They can't believe what they are experiencing. They knew Jesus was powerful. They knew he was merciful. But in this moment, they know it in a new way. They know it in the way of personal adoration, knee-bowing fear. No longer just knee-shaking fear. We all know that sort of fear. But now it's a knee-bowing, reverential fear of God. A posture of adoration because they've seen the King in His beauty. And this is the posture that must be come to by each and every one of us. They're asking, who then is this? Because they've seen a glimpse of him, and they know they're unworthy. They know he's holy. And this is what's happened all throughout history. Remember Isaiah in chapter 6? His experience in the throne room? His encounter with seeing God? A mere glimpse? What does he say in verse 5? He says, woe is me, for I am lost. I'm lost. He thought he was, you know, a pretty good dude before this moment. And then he sees God. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amidst a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When you see the King, you see him rightly, and you see yourself rightly. And you bow in reverential fear. Just like John, the Apostle John in Revelation chapter 1. Listen to what he said when he saw Jesus in part. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me mercifully, 
saying, Fear not, for I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Wow. Who then is this? Who is this one who died and was raised? Who then is this, this King Jesus who gets in the boat of our sin and our suffering? Who then is this Jesus who is near to us, who saves the crushed and the brokenhearted? Who is this Jesus who is the Father of mercies and God of all comfort? Who is this Jesus? That's the question you have to answer. That's the question you have to answer every day. Who is this Jesus? Is he the teacher? Is he the good guy? Is he the one I I put on my bumper sticker or my t-shirt? Those aren't bad things. Hear me out. But he must be your Lord. He must be your Savior. He must be your King. Because only when he's your King will you have no fear of anything else and will you have reason to be peace amidst the storms of life. Who is this? Who then is this Jesus? Is he your King? Is he he your Lord, your Savior? See, the good news of the Mark's Gospel is that we are confronted exactly where we are. Regardless of what you brought into this room, what we take out of this room is a reminder that the king is in the boat. The king is in the boat. And the king has come to calm the storms of life and to incite a storm of reverential but deep peace in our hearts when we see him for who he is. Guys, for anyone in Christ, this is the good news I encourage you to leave with today. The king is in the boat with you today. This is the hope that, uh, that I have for us in our suffering. This is the hope that, I, that I'm sure Bobby has for Margaret. The king is in the boat. Jesus is with him right now. Margaret is in the presence of this very king, Jesus, right now. Right now. That is reason to celebrate, to praise And so what we are going to do with the rest of our morning is we are going to bow our knees. We are going to lift our voices. We are going to partake of his body broken, his blood poured out to to get into our boat. His blood poured out at Calvary so that we could take and eat of new life. And we remember that the seas of this life will be calmed and someday it will be the new heavens, the new earth, the river of life flowing in Revelation 22. Death will be done. Peace will be won. No more funerals, no more hospital visits, no more sin, sorrow, suffering. Just Jesus and his people face to face, free of sin, sorrow, and suffering. I'm going to close this in prayer. And I'm going to invite uh, our worship team, the youth worship team, to come back up on stage. We're going to have a time to respond to and answer this question. Just answer this question today. Who then is this? I'm going to give you two songs. They're going to give you two songs of time to respond and speak with the Lord. Speak with the Lord and pray for each other if you'd like to. Who then is this Jesus? We're going to sing. We're going to have communion handed out. We're going to have communion handed out, I believe. And um, we're going to, after um, Matt introduces communion. So let me pray for us as we transition to the next time of our service. Father, we thank you that you are in the boat. Lord, we thank you that in Mark chapter 4, we hear of what Jesus has done, is doing, and will do. Lord, we thank you that you have come to calm the seas, the oceans, that would otherwise 
threaten to overflow the boats of our hearts, these oceans of tears, and you have come to be near to us. You have forgiven us, made a way to be drawn near, us to draw near to you. You're near us in our suffering, so we can, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, receive mercy and find grace in our time of need of help. And so, Lord, we come to you in our time of need, our time of joy, our time of suffering, and we look for the mercy and grace that you offer us. We thank you, Jesus, for who you are, and now we turn to celebrate you with bent knees and alive voices, thanking you that you are in the boat and up from the grave. This is the Jesus that we worship. We love you, Lord. We need you. We ask that your name would be glorified today and always. In his name we pray. Amen.